I don't usually get the chance to talk with people about Slavic languages other than Russian or Ukrainian or Polish. And unless you've traveled to Prague, you probably haven't thought much about the Czech language. But you know what? There's a lot of Americans and Canadians who are learning Czech. So enter Alishka, who I met a few years ago when she came to me for accent coaching. And Alishka and I clicked immediately with our passion for coaching and how we both approach languages and language learning. And today I finally got to talk to Alishka about what it's been like for her being on both sides of accent work. So as a teacher of Czech to English speakers and formally teaching German, also as a learner of Spanish and English and other languages, you're also going to hear about how she was certified as a language coach herself and how that changed the way she works with her clients. You're going to hear some sounds you might not even know existed. You're going to see how the grammar and the spelling and the syllable stress, the rhythm, and even the intonation are very different for a Czech speaker. And you're even going to get to learn a few words in this cool language. I promise you this is going to be a very unique episode. Now, on with the show. So first of all, tell me how you've been. This is maybe a good time to talk about how you came here and how you got here and your journey kind of on both sides of speaking and communication and what accent might have to do with that. Please. I am from the Czech Republic and I teach Czech to foreigners, to people from other countries, but especially to Americans and people from Canada. And I didn't pick them. They came to me. I don't know mm -hmm. why, but it works very well. I mm -hmm. feel that the cooperation works really well. So now they are my main client group. And I run a small YouTube channel that I call Because Czech is Cool. Because I really feel that the language is cool. And I taught German before. And I felt that people were like forced to learn it because of work, because of university. But then I switched to Czech. And suddenly people told me, I really like the language. I want to learn it. I have ancestors there. I married a Czech guy. So suddenly mm -hmm. it was something very exciting for them. So that's oh, why yeah. I call it because Czech is cool. Because it's yeah. cool for me and for my clients. <laughs> it is cool. Yeah, languages are cool. I'm super nerdy like this too. And I feel like Czech is a language that coming from the U.S., you hear about a lot of the bigger European languages, let's say, that are more popular or have more speakers. And then you say, oh, yeah, that's a cool one. Look at that. I didn't realize. Did I ever tell you actually that I went to the Czech Republic? I don't remember if I no, told you. you yeah. Didn't told me. Uh -huh. yeah, actually, my passport was stolen in the Czech Republic. <laughs> it was quite an adventure, not to say anything about the country. That happens everywhere, anywhere. But that was the only time my passport ever got stolen. And they say it's going to happen once. It's bound to happen once. Despite that, I loved being there. It's so gorgeous in Prague. And I just loved it. I totally would like to come back sometime soon. And I can imagine that people fall in love with the place, they fall in love with the language. What do you think it is about Czech that is interesting, maybe exotic, different, intriguing? What do you think it is about the language, the features? In terms of my clients, I think very often it's the people. So they meet someone or they have partners, they have families here, or maybe their son married somebody from the Czech Republic and they want to communicate with their grandchildren. But I also get people who are just nerdy, as you said, and they like to learn languages and they want to learn a Slavic language, right? Mm -hmm. So then they mm -hmm. choose between Russian, Ukrainian, Serbian, Polish, Czech. I think mm. for many people it's Prague because mm -hmm. it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful city. I can't really imagine it's like our nature or the, the way we behave because sometimes mm -hmm. we are very like. We don't want to talk to people and we are not really nice speaking to <laughs> foreigners. 
<laughs> but I heard a, a very nice uh, story that Czech people are like a melon, like a watermelon. So when you knock on it, it's really hard. It's really mm. hard to get in. But once mm -hmm. you get in, you get the sweet and nice oh, fruit. Oh, I love that. That's a great yes. metaphor. I was thinking the same idea as you said that, how you were describing the people in it. And then I thought, oh, I know there's a lot of cultures like that where from the outside, you think it's kind of impenetrable, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'll never make friends with these people. They don't open up, things like that. But usually when you do find that crack in the wall and you, and you get in, with those people, they're usually the most warm, wonderful people. It's really worth the effort to crack the watermelon open mm. and see the, the sweetness inside. Nice metaphor. I love it. Mm. I love it. Yeah. So for some people, they have a connection there. It could be the place. It could be the people. And then they discover how cool the language is. So what do you think is cool about it? I really like the the clensions that we use. This is something that all Slavic languages has. I don't know if you know something about it, but it's can basically... You, can you explain what declension is for, for our audience? Yeah, definitely. You take a word. So let's say in English, you have the word car. Mm -hmm. And in all possible contexts, in po all possible situations, it's just a car. So mm -hmm. I have a car. I see a car. I go by car. So mm -hmm. in Czech, depending on the context, you change the ending of the word mm. to indicate what context is it. So am I using it? Am I seeing it? Is it approaching? Uh, uh. So it, it gets quite tough and difficult, I think, for people trying to learn Czech because they not only have to learn car in mm -hmm. Czech, but car plus seven forms in the singular Ooh. and seven Ooh. forms in plural. Oh, wow. So this declension happens on nouns or it happens in the combination of which verb it is? Well, how do we see that grammatically? Yeah, nouns, adjectives, pronouns, okay. and numerals. Ooh, so a lot of things. And do they match? Is there agreement there, for example, if you've got a noun with a number? If you've got, I don't know, you're setting the table and you need five forks, do I need to do something to the number five and the number forks? I'm sorry, totally. the number five yeah. and the noun forks? Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh -huh, and uh -huh. another thing is that there are three grammatical genders in Czech, okay. masculine, feminine, and neuter, and mm. each of them have different endings. <laughs> so you have to know the gender, you have to know the case, and then you have to change the ending accordingly. So wow. it's, it's difficult. When I see my clients trying to learn this, I'm like, I'm so sorry, <laughs> but it's worth it. Just do it, it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and I like how you reframe it, right? We can say it's difficult. Okay, it's difficult. But we can say it's interesting, it's intriguing, and it's very cool. Though all those things make it really mm. interesting and cool if you're coming from a language that doesn't have that. Yeah, it's difficult, but also there's a reward, I think, for that difficulty because your brain thinks in a different way. When you have lived in a certain language and thought about the world around you in a certain way, in a certain pattern, and then you realize, hey, that's not the only way to think about it. Let me put all these different frames and filters on there. Your brain works differently and, mm -hmm. and how you see the world is different. But you know what's funny? You know, we forgot to introduce your name to the readers. Oh. <laughs> right? And I think that's also very interesting, speaking of Czech, because I remember the first time I met you, I thought, oh, this A, this is going to be very interesting because I don't know much about Czech and, and this person's background. And then I saw your name has like a symbol that I'm not used to. And I thought, I need to ask this person how to say their name because names are tricky, you know, in all languages. So can you explain a little bit how I would see your name written and how that kind of translates to the pronunciation? Okay, yeah. So my name is Eliška. This is how we would uh, pronounce it in Czech. Eliška, it's E-L-I-S-K-A. 
but the S has a little hook above it. Uh-huh. And this makes a sh sound. So it's uh -huh. like in English SH. So okay. it's not Eliska, it's Elishka. Shh, it makes shh be quiet, as in be quiet. Shh. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. To me, it kind of looked like an, an arrow pointing down, like that top part of an arrow. Right. And I remember, too, I was trying to write your name on this Google Doc that we had, and I didn't know where to find the character for that. So I felt so embarrassed because I was like, names are important. Names are such such a connection that we have with each other. And the very first thing was I didn't know how to say your name correctly. I didn't know how to write your name. It's hard to kind of even bring that up and talk about it because I've had similar troubles, too. My name in some places is very common. But in the U.S. when I was growing up, my name was not common at all. Bianca, it's not it, common. It was not when I was a kid. And so teachers, everybody would say, Bianca, Bianca, Binaka. Nobody could say my name, which was kind of frustrating as a child. So I wanted to be called Jennifer because everybody knew the name Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to, as a kid, I had to spell it. I had to, yeah, I had to teach people how to pronounce my name. And I moved to Mexico about six years ago. And we should talk about you being in Mexico. But I moved to Mexico six years ago. And before I came, I thought, oh, this is going to be awesome because it's a really common name in Mexico, right, Bianca? And I knew that because I had already met a lot of people from Mexico, women whose name was Bianca. So I was like, oh, yes, this is going to be no problem anymore in my life. Guess what? I get here. And every Uber driver now calls me Blanca with an L, B-L, Blanca, which both names exist. And when the Uber drivers have my name on their little screen, that I looks like an L. So I thought my troubles would be over, but no, I still have to correct people on my name. So I feel your pain. <laughs> Which is a bit funny because in Spanish, Blanca is like a white woman, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so it actually yes. makes sense. Yeah, and that's where it comes from, right? And I think it's Italian where it's, it's Bianca, so Blanca. So yeah, all of those kind of coexist there. But I get the names thing and names, I think for everybody are difficult. So I just want to tell everybody, when you meet somebody, don't be embarrassed to say, hey, how do I say your name correctly? You know, totally. Yeah, yeah, I do it, it every time I meet a new client. Please, yes. Please tell me your name because it gets a little bit awkward the longer you wait. So mm -hmm. yeah, we should totally do that. So since we brought up Mexico, tell us about your time there and how that kind of shaped what you do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my stay in Mexico was a big influence for what I do today. It's interesting mm -hmm. that you brought it up mm -hmm. because we moved there after I graduated. I studied history and German mm -hmm. and we went there for my husband's job. So he got his working visa and was like, okay, what am I going to do? So I started teaching German online for a European school. And I really liked the teaching aspect, mm. but I didn't enjoy teaching German so much because I'm not a native speaker. And I always felt like my accent is not perfect and I don't know all the words and I didn't really feel comfortable doing that. Mm. So then I thought, so maybe I could try teaching my native language Czech. And then little by little, I switched and I stopped teaching German and I started teaching Czech. So this is oh, how, how actually my Czech I teaching journey started. I didn't realize that. You actually started that when you were in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And yes. can I ask, what year was that? 2016. Okay. So uh, because you mentioned you were teaching online already and in 2016, doing that was still kind of new and people weren't really doing that kind of thing. And, um, and I know that because around that time too, I was doing an online master's. And everyone thought, university online. Back then, it was like, oh, no, that's not real. That's silly. How silly. And having classes online and things like that, it was still relatively new. How did you feel about working online then versus working online now? Because you've been in it for a long time. I've been always feeling really great about it because I felt independent, like being 
master of my own time. It was very convenient for me, for my clients as well. And I was especially able to teach people from the US because we were in the same time zone. So it was yeah. easier for them to take sessions with me than with people from Europe. So mm -hmm. I've actually never thought offline or face-to-face. -face. I don't have the experience. I've only done it online. Very interesting. Yeah, and I really like it. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, I've always loved working online too and being also a student online. And so now that like kind of the rest of the world is on board with that, it's so much easier. I think it used to kind of be a hard sell to say, no, this is valid and this is great. And it was kind of harder to find people willing to do that. But now it's kind of the default that yeah, people, people mm. learn online. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, to, I don't know if you have seen this too, like how the technology has changed and gotten easier and gotten so much better and cheaper because before it used to be kind of a hassle to do these things. And now it's just second like nature, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Yay, online teaching. <laughs> so let's continue talking a little bit about either like your journey in starting to teach pronunciation in mm -hmm. Czech and or what that is like for you now teaching Czech to Americans and what, what you're doing now. Yeah, it's kind of connected like me trying to learn English pronunciation or improve my English pronunciation and teaching Czech pronunciation. The thing is, when I started learning English and then German and then Spanish in Mexico, I never thought about pronunciation. I never learned it. Nobody ever told me, hey, Eliska, it's important. You should focus on it right from the beginning. So I learned so many mistakes. I have so many fossilized errors, like these mistakes that I keep repeating and I'm not even aware of them. Then mm. you help me, of course, discover some of them. But mm -hmm. it's been a while. Mm -hmm. So when I started teaching Czech, I saw all the mistakes that my American or Canadian clients would make. Mm -hmm. I was like, I should teach them right from the beginning to stop them from making the same mistakes as mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. So then mm -hmm. I started focusing more and more on Czech pronunciation of my clients. And then I realized I should probably study a little bit more about English pronunciation because I don't know a lot about it. And if mm -hmm. I learn more about English pronunciation, I can show them, see, this, this is how it works in your language and this is how it works in Czech and this is what you can change. So this is mm -hmm. actually how I then started working on my own English pronunciation. And this is how I reached out to you. That we met so long ago on the internet as well. Yeah. How do you feel like that changed things for the better, seeing where people were coming from in order to help them with how they're speaking the language, their target language? Like, how did that shift help you? It helps a ton. And I really enjoy working with like just one target group. This is my main group, English speakers, mm -hmm. English native speakers. Because then I see the same mistakes that, I, that they make over and over. And I already know why they make them and I know how, they, how to help them. Mm -hmm. So this, this makes it much easier for me to teach them, to show them. Because if I had people from many countries, I would be a bit distracted, I think. Yeah. And I love how you make that a focus from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Like often the focus in learning a, a new language is vocabulary building and grammatical structures. And you're weaving that in from the beginning. Having taught English for many years, I can tell you that a lot of the textbooks that you're required to use in different situations, they will have most of their chapter is everything else. And you might get a little paragraph, a little note. Yeah, a little bit of pronunciation. Yeah, a little, little thing, right? And that's supposed to be enough. But if your target is to speak and communicate in this language, then why wouldn't we have that be a real focus from the beginning? So I, I love that you do that because like you mentioned before, this thing called a fossilized error. And I'd love for you to explain mm -hmm. that for our listeners in a minute. But when when we wait too long, then we can say that cleaning up that mess 
becomes more difficult, right? So if you can make things right from the beginning and show people the patterns as much as possible in the language, then whew, it just makes life so much easier later on. Because if not, you end up with this thing that we call fossilized errors. So can you describe that and give an example, maybe either from your own life or something that you've seen in mm -hmm. some of your clients? Yeah, it's a mistake that you learn right from the beginning. And I think it very often comes from your native language. So if you apply rules or, or patterns from your native language, you apply it to your target language and you just start using it. And you mm. don't know it's wrong because no one ever tells you. Mm. And you just keep saying it's with me, for example, in Czech, we never reduce vowels. So every uh -huh. vowel has to be really clear, really mm -hmm. open, hundred percently there, mm -hmm. which is not the case in English because right. very often you use the schwa sound and you reduce vowel sounds. Yeah. Yeah. I don't do it in English. I know about it. This is my fossilized error mm -hmm. and I should work mm -hmm. on it. So that this is an example. Mm -hmm. Maybe one, one thing that comes to my mind, I think what's very problematic is how we start learning foreign languages. When we start learning a new language, we usually start by reading something. We open the book, oh, yes. we read something, we see the letters, mm -hmm. but we don't hear the sounds. Mm -hmm. If you don't focus on it, if you don't listen, if you don't have a person who helps you with that. Mm -hmm. So you see the letters and you read it as you are used to reading it from your native language. So mm -hmm. we have this weird sh mm -hmm. letter in Czech. Yeah. But it's very difficult for an American to read it. So the American brain just thinks, okay, in English we have sh or s and sometimes z, depending on what, what the combination could be, if it's uh -huh. at the end of the word. It's and you just get so, speaking... so confused by the, sorry, by the, no. the letters, by the text. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very yeah. important to start just by listening to sounds and repeating and trying to mimic what you hear. Yeah. I mean, because to me that feels more natural because Humans speak much earlier than they write historically mm -hmm. and individually. So it makes more sense than to say, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that word. Ah, this is just how we write it. Right. Versus trying to decode all the writing and trying to kind of force the patterns on top of that and figure out what's going on. It's a very kind of backwards approach. Mm -hmm. But it's not just English speakers learning Czech you know, that can benefit from that. But I think whatever your target language is, and I can speak in English when I've seen a lot of people, that's often the story is that, oh, yes, we learned in school. We read a lot. We didn't speak too much, right? Let's say I'm a Spanish speaker and like in Czech, the vowels are very clear. There's no question. They're very transparent. But then I go to English and the spelling is just a nightmare in terms of like how I'm supposed to pronounce those vowels. So yeah, there's a lot of that we all have to kind of endure in learning languages. And those are just languages that are phonetically written. So imagine coming from a language that's like logographic or ideographic, where to us, it kind of looks like a picture rather than the sounds. We have to learn that on top of things too. So it can be even more complicated than what we're saying. I think in Czech, tell me if I'm right about this or wrong, it's a phonetic language and you have maybe more sounds that are represented than us maybe in consonants, but not in vowels. Is that how you would kind of summarize that? There are definitely more vowels in English than in Czech. There are mm -hmm. only five vowels in Czech that can mm -hmm. be both short or long, but they sound okay. the same. You just pronounce oh. them either short or long. Mm -hmm. But the vowels for Czech speakers, or at least for me, are a nightmare in English <laughs> because there are so many of them. And, and as you said, there's fossilized errors. Maybe that you learned it wrong or your brain thinks it's right, but it's actually not. And then the spelling is always going to be there too. So those are some of the challenges that you've kind of seen on both sides. And can you tell me a little bit more about the stress in pronunciation for American speakers in English, the syllable stress 
inside of the word. What's something that they have trouble with there? The thing is that in Czech, we only stress the beginning of words, unlike in English, where you can stress like anywhere in the word. So it's problematic both for them and for me. When they try to learn Czech, they have to realize that in Czech, the word stress or the syllable stress and the length are two things that should be separate. Mm-hmm. So usually in English, when you stress a syllable, you make it longer, ah, yes. I think, right? Yes. So mm-hmm. what is longer, it's also stressed. But mm-hmm. in Czech, the syllable can be short or stressed, long or stressed, short uh-huh. or unstressed, long or unstressed. Can I stop you for a second? When you say short and long, do you mean duration? Do you mean how much mm-hmm. time I'm spending on the syllable? Okay. Exactly. Okay. Right. And do so, you know if Czech is one of the languages that's syllable stressed or time stressed? Is it a language where your syllables more or less are about the same length, for example, as in Spanish? Or is it more like in English where when you have a stressed syllable, that syllable really sticks out and that affects maybe the rhythm of the language as well? Do you happen to know which one Czech is? I think it's somewhere in the middle Mm, mm -hmm. because as I told you, every syllable, every vowel is the same in terms of quality. So we don't reduce it. We don't make it shorter, but we have long vowels. So let's take my name, Eliška. Mm. It can be E or E. It can Mm. be A, Bianca or A. It can be E or E. Sounds like time. It sounds like duration. So, when you say long, yeah. it's just that. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Do, do you get a sense that it's similar to German in that way, in terms of syllable stress and word stress and how you spend time on those things? Because that's what it, it sounds like you're describing that. Yeah, in German, they also have long vowels. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay, so we can say that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm asking because in general, if we're talking about rhythm, which usually relates to syllable stress, then there's basically two systems in the world. Really, there's three, but Japanese is one of the only ones that does that third system. For example, you've got like Spanish. To my ears, it sounds like a machine gun. The syllable length is very much uniform. And then you've got things like German, which technically it's in our rhythm system, but it's it's a continuum. So it sounds a little more choppy to us or that syllable length sounds a little different. So to me, it sounds Czech might be one of these that, oh, yeah, it's technically this kind of language in terms of its rhythm, but it's on the spectrum where it doesn't seem like that. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, but compared to Spanish and English, I definitely think it's more on the Spanish side Mm -hmm. because exactly as you say, Czech is like Mm -hmm. in English, but it's like more da 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 da, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. With the length between the stressed syllables. Okay, let's say when you look at a bunch of words on a page, it's unlike Czech in that it's not regular. It's not going to be the first syllable or the last syllable. It's irregular when you look at the syllable stress, but it becomes regular when you look at the word stress. So the distance between the stressed syllables among all the words then becomes rhythmic. Like you said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Versus da 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 And you can have, as I said, a spectrum where you've got a mix of kind of both of those. And what you were saying, I think, about the syllable stress being on the beginning of words in Mm. Czech, that's going to result in kind of an unusual rhythm for us, right? How we see that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh They're Uh very common. There are words in Czech that are pronounced like, I will just mimic the rhythm, not say the Mm. word. It's like, um, tata. So the first syllable is stressed mm-hmm. and the second one is long, mm. but it's unstressed. Mm. Da-da, mm-hmm. da-da. 
I don't think uh, there is anything like that in English. Yeah, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Because no. when we say either syllable stress or word stress, we mean three things, right? One of them we've talked a lot about duration. Like how much time am I spending on that? And then number two, we have the volume, right? I'm going to increase my volume. It's going to be louder. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is my pitch. Mm -hmm. My pitch is going to go higher, always for syllable stress. And then if it's a word stress, I might go down on the word, but there's something I do with my pitch. So we've mm -hmm. got the pitch, we've got the duration, and we've got the volume. So to me, it's really interesting because for you, you're saying, oh yeah, I can have duration. It can be longer, but that doesn't mean I'm actually stressing it. So I can do one out of two over here and two out of three over here. So I can yeah. see how the, the brain, if you're used to American English, is like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> What's going on here? Where do I need to focus? How do I break this up? So I can see how without your guidance, it might just be a bit of an overload. I, I don't know what to pay attention to. For example, in Spanish, when it's that machine gun sound to me, at the beginning, it was a bit exhausting. Because in English, I, the word that pops out the word that is stressed is the most important word in the sentence. Mm. So I don't have to listen to all those other things mm. too much. But in Spanish, I have to filter through all the machine That's guns to find out what it is. So it would be a whole different kind of approach that my brain would have to wrap around to kind of pick out the important things in check. Does that make sense how I'm describing it? Yeah, yeah definitely. Trying. And that's why I also think Spanish was... A bit easier for me to learn because mm. it's similar to, to Czech in terms mm. of pronunciation, but also grammar. Mm -hmm. I think these languages are closer than yeah. English and Spanish or English. And, and you Depending mentioned where pitch. Mm -hmm. I also think that we don't use pitch so much in Czech. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. So the way you, you use your pitch and also you, the way you use your mm, the volume, mm. I think it's much more intense in English than in Czech. Mm -hmm. In Czech, mm -hmm. it's much more... In English, it's like this, and yeah. in Czech, it's like this. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I Just think it's like our nature or the way we are. We think we Czechs are always like mm -hmm. in the middle. <laughs> we don't really want to stick out. We don't really want to be... <laughs> Everything is a bit grayish. Yeah. It's also shown uh -huh. in the language. Whereas Americans are seen as much more dramatic and yeah, kind of all, all over the place, the ups and the downs. And yeah, it's... Hard not to know what an American's thinking or feeling or what they want from you. But in some languages, depending on the culture or how the language sounds to us, we're thinking, is she angry at me? Is she being sarcastic right now? Sometimes it's hard for us to read other people because we expect maybe more signals, let's say. And that subtleness is kind of hard for us to grasp. We're always mm -hmm. guessing what the person is feeling, what's kind of behind the words, right? So the intonation and the use of pitch and volume, like you said, that could be something that you're not prepared. And so you have to dig a little deeper on the subtlety in that. So that's all stuff that's even beyond the grammar, beyond the pronunciation, <laughs> beyond the sounds. And can you tell us a little bit more about the letters and maybe some consonant clusters that Americans also find difficult besides that sh that we talked about before? I think sh is quite obvious because you have the sound. You don't have mm. the symbol, you don't mm. have the letter, but mm -hmm. you have the sound. But there are sounds in Czech that don't exist in, in English. One of them is zh, uh zh, -huh. television. There is Z is in television in Czech, uh -huh. but there is one that is a bit similar, but a bit different. Oh. Z, uh -huh. Uh -huh. To me, that's very interesting because we were talking about how letter, how, for example, we have the sh in English, English, <laughs> it's a good example, and we just write it with an S and an H, right? Mm -hmm. 
But for people who maybe don't even have a, a written language the way that we do in English, then we have this thing called IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet, right? Mm -hmm. So in Czech, and when you're teaching Americans, do you ever refer to that? Does that make things easier for you? Or does that muddy the waters a little bit in explaining this? I don't really use it because I also don't focus only on pronunciation. Okay. I'm, I'm not a pronunciation coach and a mm -hmm. pronunciation expert. I like to emphasize this. I like to do it with my clients, but I also teach grammar, vocabulary, uh, like, like everything. All of it. And mm -hmm. I don't use the IPA. No, I mm. don't. Okay. 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 Yeah. I'm curious because when you start saying these two different sounds, my ear is trying to figure it out. And then my brain is going, okay, what's different about her tongue? Is, is it the voicing? Is there more air going on here? And then because of what I do, I think so much easier just to have the symbol. Maybe later we can look up the symbols of these two sounds. One is zh as in television. And then we can also add those to the show notes. So for people who do know IPA or are interested, they can see what the difference is there too. Because even I'm having trouble hearing this because it's new. It's new mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. So we have this one. And do you have a standard way to write that sound that's like je, but it's not je? <laughs> it's an R with a little hook. So the same hook as we use in my name. And if that R has no hook, how right. do you pronounce just a, let's say, a regular R sound in Czech? What kind of R is that? It's very similar to the simple R in Spanish. Uh, Basically, okay. the simple R in Spanish. So not okay. the R as in perro, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. the R, R. As in pero. Uh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay. So what we call R. a tap R rather than a trill R. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And so your R is very forward then compared mm -hmm. to my R, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. And you're tapping right on the bump, uh -huh. right on the ridge. Exactly. Okay, cool. Oh, very cool. So that's one that doesn't exist at all in English that mm -hmm. they have to wrap their heads around. And what about one that's, I think you either write it as a CH and we have a CH too, ch, as in chocolate, right? Mm -hmm. We have that sound. Do you have something similar to that? Uh-huh. So we have, first, we have a normal C, as you have in English, but with uh -huh. a hook again. Ah. And this we pronounce as ch, so hey. a ch in English. Ch. We have a special letter that consists of two letters. So it's okay. ch, but it's mm -hmm. one letter only. And we pronounce it as th. It's one sound, th. okay. Kind of like how we do the sh, right? We write two uh -huh. letters, S and H, we put it together, and we make yeah. this one sound, sh. So you take a letter C and a letter H, you put them together, whereas I would say ch when I see that. What do you say when you see that? Uh -huh. Very well. Okay. Uh -huh. okay, for us, almost kind of like our H then in house, almost a little different. Yeah. So we also have H, uh, which mm -hmm. is produced like here, uh -huh. uh, and then uh -huh. uh, which is pronounced here like in the back of your mouth. No, these two are confusing for Americans. Yeah, absolutely. So one, to me, how I feel it is like my H is in house. You have what we would kind of consider that. It's mostly just air. There's very little friction okay. in there. I'm not stopping the air too much. It's got a, a free passage most of the way there. But this other one that you're saying to me sounds like a French like R almost. <laughs> Uh -huh, uh -huh. But a little less friction. So if you have, oh, maybe almost in Spanish when I see the letter J. Is that closer to the sound that you're describing with your CH? 
Exactly. Like uh-huh. Jose. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. So the more you know, the more languages, the more accents, the easier mm-hmm. it is. And to me, the universal reference for that is the, the IPA, the International mm-hmm. Phonetic Alphabet. So for me, that's interesting. We'll put these guides in the notes as well, because when we do the subtitles, we have to also go find the symbols to show people uh-huh. what we're talking about. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. And what about the consonant clusters that you have? And when we say cluster, by the way, in English, we mean the word cl cluster when we've got two or more consonants blended together. How does that work in in Czech? There are some tricky words that don't have any vowels or they have very little vowels. So there is a word so three Uh consonants which Uh means it's raining or the neck A-R-K or Thursday the five consonants in a row. <laughs> wow. I feel like in English, you might get a, a five consonant cluster, but it might be that like three are at the end of one word and then two are the beginning of the following word. So it's pretty rare and random, but it's possible. And when you connect the speech, then you might end up with this. But I think five would be the absolute limit. Four, I've seen in English, I'd have to think about a five consonant five consonant cluster. And for us, we look at the letters like we were just saying, oh, a C and an H, right? And you have to think, is it the number of letters or is it the number of sounds, you know, Mm -hmm. that that you're making? Yeah, because consonants can be difficult for the mouth to form. So I can see how that's going to be really difficult. Mm -hmm. So consonant clusters are difficult. Sounds that we don't have in learning Czech, we have to learn and kind of figure out how to do it with our mouth. The syllable stress and then the resulting rhythm is something we have to put our brain around. We said there was grammar where you've got these endings, the declension in the grammar. And what else about the grammar? There's something about verbs and how the aspect and things like that works in Czech that we might not be used to. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. There is one really interesting thing about Czech verbs. Basically, every Czech verb exists in two forms that are Mm -hmm. a bit similar, but a bit different. So in English, you have a verb to make or to do. And you always use it in in the same way. In Czech, there are two forms of the same verb. So we have dělat, which -hmm. means like to make or to do. And it's a process. Mm -hmm. I'm either doing it right now or I was doing it in the past. Mm -hmm. Or I would do it every day. There is repetition or a bit of a process in it. Mm -hmm. And then we have udělat, dělat, udělat, which Mm -hmm. means like do it and finish it. So how I would wrap my head around that is I think of the progressive tense, like how you just described it. I am Mm -hmm. doing it. I was doing it where we have to have the verb to be and the ing on the end. And then how we might use like a perfect tense to mean like it's finished. Do those line up in the same way? Good thing about these Czech verbs is that we only have three tenses. We have the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. And that's it. We don't have Uh all these crazy tenses that you have in English. I don't know how Uh many. 11 or how many? I think, I think 12, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is on one hand difficult. For example, Americans trying to learn Czech because for every single verb, they have to learn two versions, two mm-hmm. forms. Mm-hmm. And it's irregular. So you, you just have to learn it. There is no rule. Yeah. But then we only have three tenses. Mm-hmm. On one hand, it's more difficult. But on the other hand, it's easier. Such a story, depending on which language you're coming from and which language is your mm-hmm. target, right? It's easy and it's difficult at the same time, right? There's people often say, oh, well, what's the hardest language in the world? Or what's the easiest language in the world? Depends on where you're coming from and what you're used yeah. to. Mm-hmm. So 
to, to me, this is the cool thing about these, let's say, difficult languages is there's more opportunities to see things in a different way. Oh, mm-hmm. I didn't know you could kind of classify verbs in that way. Or I didn't know I could move my tongue in that way. And I mm-hmm. had to really think about it in this way. So maybe this is a good time to talk about kind of like natural language processing and how you think about thinking about these kinds of things. Because I know you've done a lot with this in, in terms of being a language coach. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. About language coaching? I know that in the English and American world or side of the world, you use a lot of the word coach in terms of pronunciation coach, language coach. But recently there has been a new thing and it's basically transferring principles from life coaching to language teaching and language learning. I don't know if you've tried life coaching before, like having a life coach helping you to solve a problem or dilemma in your life. Have you tried it before? I actually haven't. I haven't. No, not yet. Tell me about that. So a a life coach basically is a person who sits with you and uh, they ask you open questions. Mm. So tell me about your problem. How was it for you? And so these questions that, that start with how why, Mm. what, Mm -hmm. who, and so on. And they don't tell you what to do. So unlike a mentor who's a experienced business owner, for example, and tells you Mm -hmm. how to run your own business, but a coach doesn't tell you what to do, but they ask you, okay, so how would you approach it? So do you have any ideas how you could solve your own situation? Mm -hmm. And they Mm -hmm. help you come up with your own ideas and help you come up with your own solutions. Yeah, yeah. And in language coaching, they transfer these principles to language teaching. So uh-huh. in, when I returned from Mexico, I did a language coaching certification and they showed me how to do this with languages. Mm. And it's very interesting because mm-hmm. then I never liked being a teacher, to be honest. Yes. I never yes. liked to call myself a teacher or to be this person who tells my clients what to do. And that's mm-hmm. why I was so interested in language coaching. Mm-hmm. Because then you meet with your clients and you tell them, okay, tell me about your motivation. Tell me about your goals, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you set a goal together with your client and then you ask them, okay, how would you like to learn it? How would you like to approach it? Mm-hmm. So it's basically like guiding them, but not telling them what to do, not giving yeah. them specific tasks or exercises, but it's like you helping them to find out how they like to learn, how they like to approach language learning. And it's very individual. It's very supportive, very motivating. We're, we're totally on the same page with that teaching versus coaching. And I think that's an important point to where we have to kind of educate people on this and what the difference is, right? Because most mm. of us grew up in a school system where we were taught, we, were, we sat at a desk and we were told what to do. And we may not have had a great experience with mm. that. And this way we can think about what we want out of those things. And most of the work is getting somebody to figure out what do what do I really want? What do I really need? Am I doing this because I I think I'm supposed to do it or it, where where is this coming from? What do I want to accomplish? Also, how how do I like to work? It could be am I a morning person? Am I a night person? Do did I just have a baby and I need 5 minute chunks here and there or am I the kind of person that sits down on the weekend and just does a bunch of stuff and getting somebody to guide you with that and digging within yourself and seeing where the answers are, I've always Mm -hmm. found to be the most effective way and long lasting way to do things. Yeah. So I think language coaching, accent coaching, as long as it's done in that way, 
it's to me so much better than mm. teaching and mm. getting people motivated to do to figure out how to be autodidactic as well and like kind of seek exactly. out those things. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I think what like Czech is cool, English is cool. <laughs> when you have that interest, you want to go digging in there and you want to mm. figure out the best way for you. And you were also really interested last time we talked about, I think, neurolinguistic programming. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's the same thing. It's called neural language coaching. Mm -hmm. So they also teach you about the brain, how it works, that your client should always be relaxed, not stressed, because if they are stressed, they can't really focus, they can't really learn anything new. So it's also mm -hmm. about like how we learn, how we remember things and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which we're also not taught in school usually mm -hmm. is how to be the best learners we can be and understand how the brain can be your friend <laughs> in these things and not kind of your enemy. How mm -hmm. all the things that you do can work either giving you a step forward or maybe a step back in some of your goals and understanding that can really help streamline whatever your goals happen to be. Yeah, yeah this, this is so interesting. Uh, but it's, sorry, it's really funny sometimes when you ask people, okay, so how can I help you? What do you need from me? And they're like, what? You are the teacher. You tell me. So <laughs> it's blank. really funny that people are not used to it. They are not used to think about what they want, how they like to learn. So mm -hmm. you, you have to show them step yes. by step and be very patient mm -hmm. so that they, they can open and they can start thinking about their own language learning journey. Yeah. They often have no idea. They know that they need help and they know you might be the person to help them, but they can't see the clear path that because they've never had any training on seeing or even understanding their preferences. Oh, I like this better. I'm This works for me. They've never been given the freedom for that in, in the school system. And I understand why it's like that, but it's a whole thing. It's not just verbs and declension and <laughs> things like that. It's like, what's most effective for you and what works best? for you. Yes. And that, when did you start getting into that? Was that also when you were in Mexico? When I got back to Prague. So that was 2019. Mm -hmm. And I don't do like pure language coaching because there, I know there are language coaches who do just language coaching. I kind of pick the stuff that I like, pick the mm. techniques that I find like that fits into my system and I kind mm -hmm. of combine everything together. So I would mm -hmm. say that my Teaching style is a little bit of coaching, a little bit of mentoring, telling people how to learn, what's effective, what methods or techniques to use. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's also connected uh, with teaching. You, yeah. you have to have the teaching part as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of times where I have to stop. Like the IPA thing we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can stop and say, okay, we can keep doing this the hard way <laughs> or we can just look at this chart and we can figure this out now. And then I end up teaching and in a way, and there's so many ways to do that too. But I think it does end up being a mix of those things. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. And you're certified, aren't you, as a language coach now? Yeah, mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fabulous. Yes, that's awesome. And I think we talked about when you're teaching, and then when you're learning, we talked about the prosody, right? The pitch, the word stress, those kinds of things, how maybe intonation sounds different depending on how the person is or is used to delivering those things. And then you mentioned also the reduced vowels, you know, what we have is schwa, for example. And of all of that, is there anything else that you wanted to mention? This is what I discovered Maybe when I started working with you or when I was in this like English pronunciation learning process, which it's been a while because now I have a little kid, so it's a bit difficult. Mm. But then I, at one moment, I had this like aha moment where I realized that what's most difficult for me is actually the, the prosody. 
So uh-huh. the intonation and the rhythm and stress, mm-hmm. because I always focused just on pronunciation, mm-hmm. but it still sounded, and I know it still sounds weird when I speak in English because I apply these Czech principles that we talked about previously, that I sound like da 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 and mm-hmm. I stress the beginning of every word, even <laughs> in English, because this is how we do it in Czech. So I know that like the, the stressing um, and the intonation and melody is something I definitely need to work on in mm-hmm. English more, mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. natural. Yes. And, and sometimes it's how, as a speaker, for example, I have in Spanish, I'm still working on my vowels for sure, but also my placement. So if somebody speaks from a head voice versus like a chest voice. So in Latin America, especially women, they really speak with a head voice and the resonance is a little bit different there. And when I try to do it, like I know how to do it. My brain knows what to do. But when I do it, I have this feeling of, oh, I, I sound like a little girl. I sound mm-hmm. a bit helpless. You're right. These are my connotations of what I'm bringing from speaking English. So when you do this, you might feel a little, I don't know, sing-songy or you might feel like, who is this person speaking through my mouth right now? And it's something that we have to like, we can choose, right? We can choose to put that on like a jacket and we can say, okay, when I'm speaking to these people, I'm going to do these things. And maybe it feels weird at first, but then later you end up feeling much more, as you said, natural in that context. So I think it's worth like examining and figuring those things out too. Not just pronunciation, not just grammar and things like that, but Mm. that's a whole thing that we can do for connection if we want to. Yeah. But I think this is so important what you've just said. Pronunciation and accent, it's actually not about the sounds that we are Mm. not able to make these sounds. It's in our heads. Because we feel we sound strange or we think we sound like fools. Mm. It's in our heads. We need to just forget about how we should sound and we should just copy the or mimic the the native speaker and mm-hmm. just forget about how we sound in our native language because mm-hmm. in a foreign language, it just sounds different. And there is a quote, I think it was by Stephen Prussian. He's, mm-hmm. he's a linguist and he mm-hmm. said, I don't know how exactly it was, but something like, the problem about adults trying to gain foreign accents, it's not about their technical ability to do it, yeah, but it's about them uh, being afraid to sound like a fool. Yeah, yeah. Often it's our ego that gets in the okay. way, right? And, and that's unfortunate too. It happens to me all the time. My ego gets in the way and I think, oh, I don't want to sound like that or I shouldn't sound like that because I have these preconceived notions. And then in the end, my communication suffers for it. Either my communication or I don't have that connection with the person that I could have by doing this thing. And this is you and me. These are people, we know these things. And so we do something about it. But imagine somebody who just doesn't know any of this. It can be a little bit bewildering, a little bit confusing, not to know and and be empowered by those things. I'm glad that I, I do what I do. And I have the language as I'm learning other languages too. And speaking of that, what is it you're doing right now? Because you said you have, because Czech is cool. Tell us a little bit about that. Do you have a school? Do you have a website? Are you doing classes? And tell us a little bit more about your YouTube channel too, if you don't mind. Um, I have a YouTube channel where I post uh, videos for uh, Czech learners. And I focus on people whose native language is English. So I like to compare. I like to tell them, look, this is how it works in English. This is how it works in Czech. And I really like comparing these two languages. Uh, I don't focus on beginners anymore because, uh, as I mentioned previously with the language coaching thing, I like my clients to think about their own ways of learning. And usually with beginners, it doesn't really work because they are lost and they don't know anything. 
So I focus on more advanced speakers and I also offer uh, private sessions for pronunciation, for language learning. And recently I also started working on uh, online courses that I sell. So I have one course where I teach people how to learn Czech. Mm -hmm. So I teach them about the techniques, about the strategies, about the system. So mm -hmm. not the language, but how to set your goals, how to think about your actions, how to reach your goals and so on. So yeah, that's nice. It's <laughs> nice. That's fantastic. I know that lately it's been a little more difficult with having the baby around too, but you've already got such a great foundation, how you like to work, you know, what you like to do, you know, what's effective to other people and people can find you at your website because checkiscool.com. People can find you on your YouTube channel. Awesome. Awesome. Are there any last things that you want to tell us as well about your life, your language learning journey, how you can help people? Is there anything we haven't mentioned yet? Maybe one thing that I would like people to know is that mm. they should enjoy learning languages. I think it shouldn't be a chore. So I always uh, encourage my clients to find the beauty in the language and watch movies, listen to interesting podcasts, read books, do whatever you enjoy doing and do it in the target language. At the end of the day, it's not about the grammar, not about the vocab. It's about connection, conveying your message, mm. speaking with people, mm -hmm. meeting new friends. Mm -hmm. So this is important for me. And mm. I think it's crucial for learning languages. Yeah, absolutely. The enjoyment that you get out of it. And it comes back to that idea of what do I want? What do I want out of this? And what makes me happy? Yeah, if I want to take a course in uh, baking bread, I could do that in Spanish, right? And it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be way more meaningful to me to learn all that vocabulary and do the things in the language, even if it's just watching movies and things like that. Yeah, finding ways that make you happier and work towards that goal too. Oh, I love that sentiment. That's fantastic. And also maybe one last thing, not to yeah. be afraid of making mistakes and not trying to be perfect because if you keep trying until you're perfect, you will never start. So mm -hmm. just go and do it and you will learn along the way. Totally. Start messy. That's one of the beautiful things about languages. You always have another opportunity to get it right, make it better, make it different, right? Make mistakes. It ends up being a story later. It's all good, right? Yeah. A lot of people have that fear probably left over from school where being wrong was a problem. But mm -hmm. here being wrong just makes you understand something a bit more. So Elishka, thank you so much for coming today and talking to our listeners, because it's not often we get a chance to hear about some of these, we could say, less popular languages in the world languages. It's it's really an honor to, to hear about it from you and also from somebody who has had the same journey, right? You've been on both sides of mm -hmm. language learning and language teaching. You've gone through and seen what you're passionate about, and you've taken that passion and, and given it now to other people, too, who need that. So I really love talking to you. I think as soon as we met, we really clicked, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm so happy that now you've had the time to record this with me. If you get some time later, we can always come back and talk about more interesting things. But for today, I want to say thank you so much for coming. Yeah, Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Yay. Awesome, awesome. Okay, Thanks see, there, Bianca. Bye. 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 see you. Bye. Thank you. If you found this episode helpful in any way, please subscribe and leave a review. It's actually really helpful to me. Now, before I go, I have two tasks for you to do. First, I want you to register and come to my free monthly masterclass. They're on the last Thursday of the month. In just one hour, you're gonna master a specific American accent skill. For example, the TH sound or rhythm. The Zoom registration link actually changes each month. So the second and maybe more important thing I want to ask you to do is to sign up for my mailing list. 
because you're going to get the registration link each month and you're going to get bonus materials before and after the masterclass that I only send to my email list subscribers. The email opt-in link is down in the show notes. Be sure to sign up for my mailing list and come to the monthly masterclass for free. I'm Bianca, your personal American accent coach, and I want you to know that your voice is your choice. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye for now.